want a hero or an attaboy or a pat on the back, but sleep did not come to me till 5.30 Saturday morning over this message. I'm going to cast a big net here today. I want everybody to feel a part. It may not apply to everybody, but I'm reaching for everybody. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. Demas, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. I want to preach to you, and this is going to sound condemnatory at first, but I don't mean it that way. I want it to, I want it to come across as encouragement. But I simply want to preach to you for a little while this morning, title this message, Quitters. Quitters. Jesus, we love you. We're thankful that you have showed up here today, may I say, in fine fashion. You weren't late. You were waiting on us. We were late. And your presence has been real and rich. We feel today, God, already that we have set heaven and earth. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for being here. And God, there's people here today, you know who they are, I don't, but you do. I have no one in mind. I have no one to target, no one to single out. All I know is that you've put a fire in my bosom. And I pray today that the word of God would hit its mark, that the Holy Ghost would work. We depend on you, and without you here today, we can do nothing. We ask you that the will of God be done. Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. God bless you. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to begin this message today with something that's very offensive. It will offend some of you, I know. I ask for your forgiveness at the very beginning. I do not encourage my pastor staff to follow my example in the next few moments. But I'm going to share with you today the words of a song that, as I remember, was out very popular a country western song, C&W, late 70s, I think it was, maybe mid to late 70s, I don't remember, Kenny Rogers did it, but I want to use this very seriously, and very soberly, and I very rarely do this, I don't like to bring secular stuff to the pulpit, but I want to use it today as a foundational tool for what I've come to preach to you, I don't mean this to be funny. It's very sober because it is. it depicts the condition of our world and even a lot of people in church who are under the umbrella of trying to serve God. He wrote, In a bar in Toledo, across from the depot, on a bar stool, she took off her ring. I thought I'd get closer, so I walked on over. I sat down and asked her her name. When the drinks finally hit her, she said, I'm no quitter. But I finally quit living on dreams. I'm hungry for laughter. And here ever after, I'm after whatever the other life brings. In the mirror I saw him and 
I closely watched him and thought how he looked out of place. He came to the woman who sat there beside me and he had a strange look on his face. The big hands were calloused. He looked like a mountain. For a minute, I thought I was dead. But he started shaking, and his big heart was breaking, and he turned to the woman and said, You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille, with four hungry children and a crop in the field. I've had some bad times, and I've lived through some sad times, but this time, the hurting won't heal. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. After he left us, I ordered more whiskey. I thought how she had made him look small. From the lights of the bar room to the rented hotel room, we talked without talking. We walked without talking at all, and she was a beauty, but when she came to me, she must have thought I'd lost my mind. I couldn't hold her after the words that he told her kept coming back time after time. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. One of the most grieving things to the heart of God and one of the most devastating burdens a pastor has to bear is watching someone who quits who quits serving God, who quits serving in the kingdom of God. Quitting occurs when a person abandons the kingdom of God, its concepts, when a person abandons the church and even abandons the saints that have been a part of fellowship and friendship with them. It is a cycle that has been repeated over and over again. And it will continue to be this way until the rapture occurs. I want to say to every person sitting in this building today with everything on the inside of me, it must be the goal, the determination of every person in this room to never, ever, become a part of this cycle called quitting. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell them fervently, I am not a quitter. No matter what happens, no matter how deeply you've been hurt, no matter how much grief that hurt has caused, No matter how serious the offense, no matter how great the temptation, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and in chapter 3, he gives verse after verse. I posted it on Facebook, I believe, Thursday. That there's a time to do this and a time to do that and what have you, but you'll never read in that scripture that sequence of scripture, that there is ever a time or justification to quit.
man named M. Hills, an article taken from backsliders and worldly Christians said, it is doubtful if a moral fall is ever precipitous or abrupt. People decline in religion, he said, and they backslide gradually, and I totally concur. He said it's like descending a stairway. They go down step by step. I want to ask you to turn your cell phones off, Facebook, Twitter, texting, whatever you're doing. I want you to listen to my message. I'm going to ask you to be kind to me today. Herman Melville said, We warn you against little concessions, little acceptances, little indulgences, little conformities. Each may only destroy the millionth part of the velocity, but this little destruction of a millionth has only to be perpetually repeated and the planet's march is arrested and its luster is quenched. If vital religion be driven out of the soul, it will be as the Canaanites were to be driven out before the Israelites little by little. William Garnall said, Many are soon engaged in holy duties, easily persuaded to take up a profession of religion, and as easily persuaded to lay it down. Like the new moon which shines a light in the first part of the night, but is down before half the night be gone. Lightsome professors of truth in their youth, whose old age is wrapped up in thick darkness of sin and wickedness. W.P. Lockhart said, In a petrifying spring, articles are often placed under the dripping water. And as it trickles down upon them, they are gradually hardened until they become like the very stone. So it is with sin, he said. Gently and slowly it seeks its way into the heart and hardens it day by day, even while the possessor of that heart may be more or less unconscious of the change that's going on. This is backsliding, he said. Sin is permitted, the heart gradually hardened, unbelief taking its place on the throne, and then departure from the living God. Thomas Watson said, The world eats the heart out of godliness, as the ivy eats the heart out of the oak. The world kills with her silver darts. There are numerous biblical examples of quitters. Furthermore, in every church, there are those that can be remembered who have now backslidden and departed the faith. If you don't mind participating here for a moment, I'd like for you to raise your hand if you know a backslider today. Everybody here today, Virtually everybody in this room knows someone. If the truth is known, it is probably a close acquaintance and even perhaps a relative that determined at some point over some cause due to some unfortunate circumstance said, I'm quitting. I've had enough.
in my personal life, I've had many, many close friends who were one time greatly involved in the kingdom of God, even involved in the ministry. I have close, dear friends who have pastored churches for lengthy periods of time that due to unfortunate situations and circumstances said, I'm walking away, I'm quitting. I'll confess to you in October of 2006, this pastor almost made that very destructive decision myself. These people loved God with all of their heart. But some little thing on the inside of them began to grow in their heart until one day it totally separated them from God and from their church. Quitters will be part and parcel of any church that exists. Not only have I had peers that have quit, but I have observed those who were literally stalwarts in the faith who decided that the love of the world held greater promise for them than did the permanence of the kingdom of God. Quitters. The quitters that Paul mentioned, and there are several, I want to talk to you about some of them and particularly one. But first, while Judas Iscariot is one of the classic New Testament examples of a quitter. There's another example of a man who brings it even closer to home because of what the Scripture has to say in defining him and what he did. I read to you and I'll read it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. Paul clearly stipulates here that Demas was one who was in a ministry partnership with him, yet when the pressure of spiritual life began to show itself, Demas quit. He quit. He turned to this present world simply because he loved the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is frankly giving out the swan song of of his life. In fact, in verse 6, he states that he is now ready to be offered. He is literally making reference to the fact that he is preparing his life to be poured out as a drink offering. The greatest calling that's ever been placed on a man should have gotten the greatest salute, but for Paul it was not to be. There were no parades, no dinners in his honor, no accolades, no great rewards. In fact, there was nothing for Paul but a cold, dank, rat-infested cell that was full of filth and disease. Beyond that was the executioner's blade that was about to sever his head from his body. All of this because Paul was involved in building a kingdom that he could not see. Listen to me, grace people. This is the great dilemma of spiritual life. And because sometimes what we are building are things 
that we cannot see. There is a prevailing and oftentimes overwhelming sense of discouragement and demoralizing defeat because you can put in hours of untold intense prayer and preparation but not see any physical change around you. It's one of the heavy burdens that every pastor carries especially. Paul had impacted so many people in so many great ways. These people were literally scattered all about the world. What is not brought out, what you hardly ever hear connected to the ministry of the great and infamous Apostle Paul is that there were some people whom Paul could not affect. Lives of people that even the great Apostle Paul could not impact successfully. And their lives ended up in shipwreck. This could have been in the mind of Paul when he addresses Timothy in the last writings of his life. I like to think of it, Pastor Staff, that had I gone to Paul's church, no one could have been made more ready for heaven than me. But that wasn't the case with Paul's church, with Paul's converts. He didn't save all of them. Even under the auspices of that phenomenal man's eternally impacting ministry, there were still people that quit on Paul. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of of God. He went on to say in verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound works which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep thee by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Notice verse 15. But there's something else I want you to know, Timothy. That all they which are in Asia Everybody in Asia, Paul said, are turned from me. They've turned away. They quit. They reached a point where they said, I can't do this anymore. Among them are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul names these last two for Timothy. Perhaps for the value of shock, they were prominent men that people would have undoubtedly asked, can you believe that these two men have departed from the faith? How many quitters did Paul have along the way? One can be sure that there were many who were saved and influenced by his ministry. But the fact remains, that everybody that converted under Paul didn't stay with him. 
They didn't stay with the journey. They did not complete their conversion process. It's fortunate for Paul, but there was a man. He is referred to in his place. It's the house of Anesiphorus. He was faithful, and he and his house ministered to the needs of Paul. They were keyed into the ministry of refreshment. Every pastor and every minister needs people around him or her that serve this purpose. I want to thank God for this church. There's people here that bring refreshment to my life. And I'm not talking about a cold drink. Um, You don't know there's people that I have lunch with on a regular basis. I do a lot of that on purpose because you bring refreshment and encouragement to my life. The J.B. Phillips translation renders this verse, Many times did that man put fresh heart into me, Paul said. The Greek word for refresh means to cool again, to cool off, to assist one to recover from the effects of the heat again, to recover the breath, to take air. Furthermore, they were not ashamed of Paul. They were not ashamed of his literal change in handcuffs when when he was in prison. What could happen to those among us if there was a choosing to devote oneself to the ministry of refreshment? But even in the midst of these faithful few that Paul had around him, Paul concludes the last few lines of 2 Timothy. He says that no one stood with him. This is the exact pattern of ministry that Jesus and even Stephen in Acts chapter 7 would have to endure. When their time of departure came, there was no one there. The Bible said in reference to Jesus that the shepherd would be smitten and the sheep would be scattered. Everybody quit. Paul died without anyone there to encourage him. (laughs) Demas was a close friend of Paul, had been very closely associated with him for a number of years. As a matter of fact, you meet Demas for the first time in Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Paul is writing Philemon and he establishes that Demas is a fellow laborer. Demas over the years had been associated with some very formidable men. In addition to Paul, he had been associated with Epaphras, a powerful praying pastor in Colossae. However, all of the activity of Demas' life can be summed up In one verse written by Paul. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. In one translation, the expression is that he had deserted Paul. What should be made of this word? The real connotation that lies behind it is simply this. It means to leave in dire straits, to leave helpless, 
to leave totally abandoned and utterly forsaken. Demas left Paul in utter straits and total abandon, utterly forsaken because he loved the world. He loved the systems of the world. He loved the ideas and thoughts of the world. Listen to me, child of God, this morning. John said in his epistle that you cannot love the world. For if you do, the love of God is not in you. Demas actually fell into two of the categories or types of soil that Jesus described in Matthew 13. Number one, he was rocky soil, which allowed the seed to grow for a while, but then the plant was snuffed out. When persecution and suffering came to Demas, he withered away. Number two, he was a type of the thorny soil. When the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches usurped the power of the Holy Ghost and gained a foothold in his life, the tender plant of the gospel withered away. This backsliding and quitting of Demas was a great sin. I don't know how many of you are on board with me this morning or not. I'm doing the best I can. The backsliding and the quitting of Demas was a great sin. It was first of all a sin against the great revelation that he had received from God as a young man. He could not attempt to to plead that, that ignorance had caused him to lose his way because God had revealed himself enough to Demas to sustain Demas to that golden shore. Demas in his quitting became a sin against the love of God because Demas loved the world more He made it out as though the love of God wasn't enough. It was a sin against the great revelation of good examples and mentors like Paul and Luke and Epaphras and others who had greatly influenced him in his early days. It was a sin for him to yield to the temptation of worldliness that had crossed his path. It was a sin for his influence to be used in a negative way. By his poor example... Others would have been drawn into that same web of deceit and it would have brought a reproach to the witness of the early church. Demas didn't understand the consequence of quitting. He didn't understand how far it would cast a shadow across the lives of others. He quit and it became a sin and an offense against God. Listen to pastor this morning. Mere association with the church and holy things do not in themselves necessitate the certainty of salvation. Every child of God will have to stand the test of time. And only when we love the things of God more than the things of this world will be one successful at Christian living.
the old songwriter wrote years ago, you can have your worldly pleasure, your silver and your gold. You may pile up all the riches that this old world can hold. But I'd rather have my Savior and with Him firmly stand for I want to be ready to meet Him in glory land. Let's compare Paul to Demas and you'll find one who kept the faith with tenacity and desire. Paul and Antioch, and this will take a moment, be patient. But Paul and Antioch kept the faith when they attempted to silence his voice with their outbursts and interruptions and contradictions and even accusations of blasphemy. When Paul was in Lystra, he kept the faith. When he almost suffered a similar demise, as did Stephen, he was dragged and wounded and bleeding and dumped on the outskirts of town and left for dead. In Philippi, he kept the faith when he was treated as a criminal and tossed into prison. In Thessalonica, he kept the faith when some baser sort of fellows falsely accused him of sedition or treason or incitement to rebellion. In Athens, he kept the faith when he confronted those on Mars Hill for their worship of idols. In Corinth he kept the faith by instructing those who were unstable in the patterns of spiritual life. In Ephesus he kept the faith by pointing people to Christ and turning them away from Diana. In Jerusalem he kept the faith when he was stoned again by an enraged mob. He was bound with iron fetters but he still kept the faith. In Caesarea he kept the faith when he stood before a trembling and conscious stricken Felix in the audience of King Agrippa. He kept the faith by using an intensity and passion that the king was pressed to a point of almost becoming a Christian himself. In the Roman prison he kept the faith in the closing hours of his life in that dismal dark cell by stating that he was ready now to be offered. All of these examples from Paul's life just reiterate the fact that we must give ourselves diligently to the service of the kingdom, no matter where we may reside or what our circumstances have been. There's never justification. What does quitting do to a person? What does quitting do to your soul? In James chapter 4 verse 4, I know my spirit is right here this morning. There's people here today that's thinking about quitting. There's somebody here this morning that thinks you can't go another step and, and you think it's okay and you're justified. I hope I'm getting through to you. James said, you adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses, men and women, Adulterers and adulterers, adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Friendship with the world is literal hostility toward God. The world hates the truth. The world is full of sinful, corrupt human thinking. And it's always going to oppose God's kingdom. James carries 
this thought to an incredible level when he calls those who associate with the world adulterers and adulteresses. James is addressing Jewish believers who knew exactly what he was writing about. They knew very clearly what spiritual adultery and harlotry was. One of the great tragedies of our modern times is that many are professing to be in the church and at the same time pursuing the things of the world. As Charles Spurgeon wrote, at breakneck pace on the downgrade. It is an ongoing love affair with the world and all of its enticements. The world has much more devotion than does their relationship with God. This is the crux of what James was explaining. There's a spirit of worldliness that is cunning in her efforts to woo the church into a state of spiritual paralysis. Spiritual prayer becomes bankrupted by over-involvement in the world. The Old Testament is full of descriptions from the prophets of what God saw when he looked at their backslidings. In 2 Chronicles 21 verse 11, Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah, caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compelled Judah thereto. And there came a writing from Elijah the prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah. But thou hast walked in the way of the kings of Israel who were wicked, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring, like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also has slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and their wives and all their goods. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 20. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. And thou said, I will not transgress when upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. Yet I planted thee in a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Jeremiah said in chapter 3 and verse 6, The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She's gone up after upon every high mountain and every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Quitting for a child of God to quit in and of itself is a form of idolatry. James writes, because when you quit, you give your loyalty and allegiance to something else instead of God. James writes that those who corrupt their worship are in hostile posture towards God. What was once sacred has now become so soiled that God wants no part 
of their worship. I want to read a couple of passages out of Psalm that will indicate what will ultimately happen to those who are the enemies of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 68 and verse 21, that God will wound the head of his enemies and the hairy scalp of such as one as goeth on still in his trespasses. God is jealous in Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Demas listened to the wooing call for too long and he quit. He departed back to Thessalonica soon becoming the enemy of God. His former life of sin had too much of a call to him. This is why that as soon as you get right with God, that there has to be a forsaken of the places, things, and even the people who once had a share in your previous wicked lifestyle. Thessalonica was along the trade route with a population of some 200,000 people. And all of the world's vices were on on display for him to see. So because Demas did not love God and he loved the world, he was overcome. Let me tell you today, child of God, you are no match for this world without the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of this world will ravage your soul. Truth and righteousness must be embraced and error must be forsaken. For too long, there is a willingness to think that doctrine is the only place for error. Nothing could be further from the truth because the devil uses every opportunity he can to subvert the souls of men. One has to understand that anything and everything opposing God is unacceptable. But in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, the apostle introduces and describes to us a level of faith that can enable us and empower us to be an overcomer. He said, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. God can empower you, child of God. God can enable you through your faith in Him to overcome the world. Jesus said we could take great joy in the fact that even He had overcome the world. I sat down Thursday night wrapping up the preparation of this message. And in less than five minutes, I wrote down, typed out the names of at least 15 people from my childhood through now, and God knows there's many, many more. But in about five minutes, came up with at least 15 people. And out of respect to our sweet families in this church, I'll not call their names 
but 15 people that decided to quit. Some of them quit while they were sitting on the church pews. It just took a little while for them to terminate their attendance. Some of these have fallen from ministry. Some have divorced and remarried and even divorced again. Some have turned to alcohol and or drugs. Some have deceived themselves into believing that even the Bible itself is false and an error. One of my best friends, closest friends as a teenager, talked to me just a couple of months ago and claims how he talks to the dead on a regular basis. If I called his name, there'd be an overwhelming number of people here today that would know him. He talks to the dead on a regular basis. He told what is now his third wife that I talk to your deceased father on a regular basis. He even made a very short, futile attempt to convince me that he could teach me how to do the same. He said, you really haven't lived until you know how to talk to the dead. This man was used in the gifts of the Spirit. This man used to run the aisle. This man was faithful to the prayer room. This man helped me pray together for my lost sibling. This man professed to a call to the ministry, but at some point something happened and he quit. All of us here today, everybody here today, must learn and discipline ourselves to wade through the hurts, the offenses, and the disappointments that comes from the world, friends, saints, and even preachers, and learn how to love God again. I want to describe something to you as I bring this to a conclusion. (coughs) Brother and Sister Buller sat in our home Thursday. Told us a story about a family that they knew very well and I'd been introduced to them, Sister Murphy and I had. Never felt comfortable around the man and I confessed that to the Bullers. Had been married in excess of 40 years. Listen to me very carefully. Been married for over 40 years, had three handsome sons who were married. And all three of them had children of their own. Should have been a very successfully happy married man. Happy to be a father and now a grandfather. What a heritage. Churchgoer would lead the singing from time to time. But was invited to his high school reunion of however many years ago that was when he was in high school. Went to the reunion and found an old high school sweetheart and virtually overnight fell in love, turning his back on his marriage, quitting. I'd rather have you than the woman who brought my children into the world that many years ago. He brought this woman to their home city 
His wife knew of now of the affair. Their boys were devastated. Didn't even want to talk to their dad. Wanted nothing to do with him. The mother found out where he was staying in some seedy motel room with this woman. She walked over three miles and pleaded with him to come back to her. Cried and begged and he laughed at her with his face sticking out of the motel room door. I don't want you anymore. I don't love you anymore. I'm going to spend my life with this woman. After two or three months of dating the old high school sweetheart, she abruptly died. The damage now with his wife of some 40 years was too great. Now he went to her house and beat on the door and said, Baby, will you take me back? There's an interesting part to this story that I want to share with you. This may have caused fence to some, and I don't mean to, but accept the illustration. I'm holding in my hand a wedding band. And the old C&W song I read to you a few minutes ago, the songwriter depicted the story of a woman who left her husband in dire straits. She quit. I'm done with this marriage. I'm tired of chasing a dream. I'm tired of never being able to laugh and enjoy life. So I'm leaving you and he pleads his case. But honey, we have four kids together. I've got a crop in the field to be harvested. You're leaving me at the worst time that you could leave me. This is what I want you to notice today. And this is the reason why I read to you that song. I know somebody that's very close to me that just went through a divorce. I've seen this happen throughout my tenure in ministry. That sometimes a married couple will divorce after many years of marriage. And the first thing they do is yank off that wedding band and toss it aside and put it in the drawer. But recently I've come to know somebody who divorced. But he wouldn't take off his wedding band. I don't wear these things, my own convictions, but man, I got to put it on my finger this morning to bring it to church. I like it. It just don't work for me. But uh, this is my wedding band. I never wear it. Sister Murphy fusses at me from time to time. I want her to wear one because I want all, she's beautiful to me and I want every man to know she's married and leave her alone. You mess with her. I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to do something. Brother James carries a 45 with him. I'll call him if I can't do it. But don't mess with my wife. I feel like a hypocrite. I want her to wear one, but I'm not going to wear one. But I'm not, no one looks at me, so it's not a problem. It's the way I feel about it. But I know this person that divorced. But they wouldn't remove their wedding band. And in preparation for this message, it did something to me. Somehow or another, in his mind, he couldn't accept the fact that he was divorced. He wanted people around him to still think he's married. To still think that the the marriage is fine. I've been married now for almost 40 years. And somehow in his head... 
He couldn't divorce himself of that. Continued to wear the band. It occurred to me that there's Pentecostals everywhere, spiritually speaking, that still wear the band, but they haven't been married to Jesus for a long time. I want everybody to think that I'm still in this intimate relationship with God when the truth of the matter is that I'm whoring around with the world in seedy hotel rooms. And God shows up at my door periodically and says, will you please come back to me? We say no. But what you don't understand is now the kids have caught on. Your relatives has caught on. Your friends at work has caught on. That you act like you're married to God because you still wear that wedding band. But your life says something else. Demas tried to find that place where I still hang out with Paul And I attend Paul's church, but I'm really not married to his God. It reminds me of a little woman in the Old Testament. We don't even know her name. Jesus just called her Lot's wife. She came out of Sodom. She walked out with a family, tall and proud, loud and proud she walked out. Still married to Lot. Still the mother of her children. Still looking like the epitome of righteousness and holiness. But on the inside, there was an adultery. I want to plead with this church this morning. I'll get on my face and beg. But there's people here today that love the world. Forsake it. Because if you love the world, you're an enemy. I suppose by now you're wondering about these five chairs that are up here. I asked Casey to print these letters out for me and I wanted them in the color red to represent the blood of Christ. Those of you that text understand if you text somebody in all capital letters it means you're shouting. So I wanted her to do them in all capital letters. I want the blood of Christ to start shouting at somebody here today. That man that I just referred to that dumped his wife of over 40 years after his high school sweetheart. She went back to him. He went back to her and beat on the door and said, Baby, would you please take me back? And she said, No, the damage is too great. You've hurt me too bad. You've cut my heart in half. And I understand that. I'm totally on board with that. But I want to introduce you to a God today that thinks a little bit different. You could have gone and loved the world. You could have quit. There may be somebody here today that quit. I used to teach Sunday school, Pastor. I used to sing in the praise team. I used to be an usher. I used to pray in the prayer room, but I quit. 
There may be somebody here today that that's thinking about quitting, that I just can't do this anymore. I want to give you an invitation to experience and to encounter the grace of God. He won't slam the door in your face. He'll take you back. No questions asked. You tell him you're sorry and you want to start over, he'll take you back. The Holy Ghost is speaking to somebody right now. He'll take you back. The devil has deceived you with a lie. It said because of what I've done and where I've been. God will never take me back. That's not true. Were you here a couple of Sundays ago when Pastor Langford preached about the prodigal and what his dad did and all the traditional rules that he broke and all the cultural rules that he broke to run to his son and challenge the town to condemn him for it? That's the way God is. You're not going to hurt God's reputation by him taking you back. His blood... His grace, unmerited favor. You can come to God right now. You can come to God right now. And your past will never be brought up again. Where you've been, what you did, how angry you got, how bitter you got, how sinful you got. He'll never be brought up again. Whatever it was you did, he'll never mention it again. He just wants you back. Tell you what I wanted to do, Sister Yvonne Thompson. When I was preparing this message, I thought about you. She's given me permission to do this, and all of you know I have more respect for this lady than any of you can even imagine. But she came to God years ago and I don't know what happened, don't need to know, it's not my business, but she quit. Went back to alcohol. Lost her marriage. Married someone else. But she came back. Had I done what I wanted to do, I wanted you to be the first one to come up here and take the word G to that chair. Because she loves the grace of God and it shows in everything she does and everywhere she goes the lady loves the grace of God Melanie I wanted you to come and take the word R because here's another lady that I respect so deeply that loves the grace of God thank you for teaching my grandsons in Sunday school and showing them the love of God. Little Brianna Foster is at youth camp in Tioga. Going up there and she's going to work all the camps again. She's been doing it for several years, but I wanted her to come up here because everything in her life, it seems like, is against her living for God. But I wanted her to take the letter A up here 
I was going to ask Brother Brian to come up here and take the letter C. going to ask Jaquana to come up here and take the letter E because these people love the grace of God because the grace of God never holds your past against you. Let me tell you why I didn't do it. I didn't call these people to come up here and do that because it wouldn't have been fair because there's a room full of people here today that loves the grace of God. Brother Jeff, don't you love the grace of God? Casey, don't you love the grace of God? Brother Steve, don't you love the grace of God? Brother Charlie, what do you think about the grace of God? Brother Vic, Steve, what do you think? Brother Don, what do you think, man? I could go all across this building. Sister Vernell, what do you think about the grace of God? Sister Eton, what do you think about the grace of God? I love the grace of God because the grace of God takes me back no matter what I've done, no matter how many times I quit or wanted to quit. It always takes me back. God washes me in his blood and fills me again with his spirit. Stand with me today all over the house. Dave, aren't you glad for the grace of God? Brother Merrill, Brother Jason, Shaquana, aren't you thankful for the grace of God? Mr. Sheila, don't you love the grace of God? Unmerited favor. There's nothing you can do to deserve the grace of God. And that's the beauty of it. Because you don't have to do anything. It's all there for you, man. Welcome to His grace. So, I'm going to take a few minutes. Now, I'm preaching too long, but I preached almost an hour. I apologize. But I want them to sing an old song today, one you haven't heard. Probably people here today that's never heard it, but it's my heart throb this morning. To anybody and everybody in this building that's thought about quitting, that's maybe thinking about quitting, don't quit. Don't quit. Brother Gary, aren't you thankful for the grace of God?